Good afternoon, everybody. It is two o'clock and you are joining us for the Pastors and Leaders Roundtable. We sponsor this roundtable every month and bring you amazing speakers and guests from all over the country who help us address the issue of pornography, biblical sexuality, and so many other great topics. Today, we have an amazing guest with us. Uh, this lady needs no introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and give her one anyways. It is Shannon Etheridge. She is an award-winning author with 22 books. Wow, how do you have any time to do anything else? <laughs> That's a lot. And they include the bestseller Every Woman's, uh, Every Woman's Battle series, which has sold over a million copies. It was published in 30 languages. She also has other books called uh, The Sexually Confident Wife and The Fantasy Fallacy, which the American Association of Christian Counselors declared a must read for every pastor. So for all my pastors and leaders out there, you heard it first here on the, well, probably not first, but you did hear it here that you've got to read this book. Um, we are just so excited to have Shannon joining us. Um, she has tons of books. She has a great blog. She's got some amazing videos, some TED Talks. If you check out her website, uh, it's shannonethridge.com. You will see a host of great information. But with all of that, I want to go ahead and pass the baton over to Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us today. You bet, Karen. Thank you so much for having me and Rob for putting all these things together and shout out to Sam Black and just the vision that Covenant Eyes has is so tremendous. And to have the opportunity to sit at this round table and have this discussion with people all over, not just the country, but the globe, most likely, is just such an honor and a privilege for me. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and start with um, uh, a few little tidbits here. Let me uh, get my ducks in a row with actually starting it as a slideshow. So yes, I have been in this industry for the past 27 years. Uh, I'm currently most actively involved in life and relationship coaching with individuals and couples. Uh, I do still do some writing, but after cranking out 22 books in about a 15-year span of time, I've come up for air. I'll go back to writing at some point. I also am an international speaker, and I like to consider myself a trailblazer, but sometimes the definition of trailblazer means the one who has all the arrows in their back. This is certainly uh, a lot of uncharted territory, especially for women to talk so openly about sexuality in the church. I'm so grateful for all those people who have gone before me, who have also been trailblazers. And I was very privileged to be partnered with some of those trailblazers very early on, almost 20 years ago now, with Stephen Arterburn and Fred Stoker. As they did the Every Man's Battle series, uh, they reached out to me and asked if I would create correlating books for adult women, for teenagers, for parents raising young girls and for couples. And so I, those are the books that I was cranking out one after another as fast as I could. And we are so honored that collectively the series has sold over 4 million copies and been translated into 30 different languages. So we feel as if God allowed us to be part of a movement that only he could orchestrate. None of us claim credit for the success of that, but we definitely feel that God knew that the world is ready to, to have a more direct message of sexual integrity because things had just gotten so out of whack in our society. And so I was privileged to be a part of that movement. And before I go any further, I have to just make a quick public service announcement that Fred Stoker and Steve Arterburn have just this year released a 20th anniversary edition of the Every Man's Battle book. It has about 20,000 
extra words in it that are really all about the latest scientific breakthroughs and discoveries and research about what the what pornography does to the male brain and how it impacts his sexuality and his sexual intimacy. And so I would urge you that if you've never been familiar with this series, then start with this one. But if you already have the books on yourself, it's probably time for an update so you can get some fresh and new information. And then after I wrote the entire series about sexual integrity, that was really what it was all about is helping women learn how not to act out. And I had graduated from the School of Hard Knocks in that regard. I had been a very promiscuous teenage girl. And when I was around 27, went through a, a, a reckoning season with why had I done the things that I had done and how could I become the person that I really wanted to be? And I was so grateful for counselors that worked with me for about a six month period of time, intense individual and group therapy to help me discover the root of my acting out in my teenage years so that I didn't go back to that as an adult. And so after I did the Every Woman's Battle series, what I kept hearing from women is, okay, well, what is Every Woman's Battle about? Is that about shopping? Is that about eating? And I would say, no, it's about sexual integrity. And sometimes women would say, oh, well, that's not my battle. I don't even want to have sex with my husband, let alone some other man. And I would think, don't you think that that's a battle in and of itself, that you're not even interested in having sex with your husband? And so I started focusing my writings at that point more on helping women blossom sexually and become more sexually confident wives. That was the title of my book that came out through Random House many years ago. And then with Thomas Nelson, I released two books called The Fantasy Fallacy about exposing the deeper meaning behind our sexual thoughts and the passion principles about celebrating sexual freedom in marriage. Because I didn't want to just address the people who were acting out and trying to rein things back in. I also wanted to inspire the people who were shut down to rein things back in, I guess, the other way, just to create more of a, of a healthy balance in their sex life. So what I have come to understand, especially about female sexuality over the past 27 years, is that it is literally like a pendulum swing. You know, my parents told me that you know, there are two kinds of girls in the world, those that will and those that won't. And those that will, boys are going to use and abuse. And those that won't, those will be the kinds that they take home to mama and will marry. And so we got that message loud and clear that good girls don't, good girls don't, shut it down, dial that knob way, way down. Well, what this has caused in our society is literally a generation or two or three of women who have dialed their sexuality knobs so far down that they are literally completely out of touch. I call it disembodied from their sexual energies. And so the pendulum swing can be described like this. Sometimes women swing way too far to the left. They act out and become promiscuous like I did as a teenager, or they start looking at porn and find themselves addicted to it, or they strike up a conversation online with a stranger or develop a huge crush on a coworker or a pastor. I mean, you get the idea. Sometimes her pendulum swings too far to the left, but other times in her life, same woman, her pendulum can swing too far to the right where she is shut down. She has lost that love and feeling and she doesn't know where to find it. And her husband is clamoring to touch her and connect with her. And she just has zero appetite for that. And this is usually the dynamic that causes men to then start looking at porn and channeling their sexual energies in that way. So I think it's really important that we talk about not just how to keep women from acting out sexually, but how to keep them from going so far the opposite direction that now they're shut down. 
that healthy middle ground, this is what it looks like. In that place in the middle, instead of acting out at like nine o'clock on the, on the pendulum swing or shut down at like three o'clock on the pendulum swing, I like to help them find a healthy middle ground at around six o'clock where they're interested in motivated sex partners, but only with their husbands, not someone else. So that has always been my goal. And one of the most common ways that women are now acting out is through pornography use. Now, when I wrote the Every Woman's Battle series 20 years ago, it really wasn't that huge of a problem with women anyway, because the internet was so new. And quite frankly, the pornography back then was pretty much designed for men and their desire for visual stimulation. But the pornography industry has gotten really smart and created a lot more female-oriented pornography with storylines and, and uh, more creative fantasies. And it, it appeals more to the female brain. And so here we are all these years later, and I have so many women showing up at my workshops, embarrassed and humiliated to admit the fact that their husbands overcame their pornography addictions years ago. Maybe they went to an every man's battle workshop or read the book or, or had covenant eyes on his computer or whatever. But she is coming admitting that she is the one addicted to pornography. And again, there is so much shame there because she feels as if this should be a man's battle, that it's not a woman's battle, but it has become a woman's battle. So at first she's all intrigued and titillated and she's realizing that it's creating these feelings in her body that she's never felt before, but it's not just the positive feelings that this imagery creates. It's also some negative feelings that these images create because once the high is over, once she's masturbated and had her orgasm to these images, after that, she feels horrible about herself she feels a slave to these websites. She feels as if pornography is a ball and chain that she cannot escape. And so really we have a situation of a bait and switch that porn makes a lot of promises, but then it steals a lot of things. So this is how it could best be summarized in my opinion. And I'm going to go back and forth. Uh, one, uh, one of the bait lines is, well, everybody looks at porn, but the switch line is, I feel so much shame. Am I the only woman who looks at this? So it's amazing how Satan really minimizes things before we do it and then maximizes things after we do it. So before she thinks, well, I'm just being one of the crowd. And afterwards she feels like I'm the only one who's, who's addicted because we just don't hear women talk a lot about being addicted to pornography. It's, it's, it's not an in vogue thing to claim like it has become for men. There's a lot more shame infused in, in women. Uh, another line is, I just want to see what my boyfriend or husband is looking at. So they go looking at it out of curiosity. But the switch is, well, why does my husband feel the need to look at her or look at that? Then it stirs all kinds of insecurities. Now she's wrestling with the body image bear. She has so many anxieties that she's not good enough. She's not beautiful enough. She's not sexy enough to arouse him. When in reality, it has nothing to do with any of those things. And that is an entirely different seminar for a different day on what it is that men are really looking for so that their wives don't take it so personally. But that is how she feels. And then going back to bait number three, what can I learn from porn that my parents and pastors didn't teach me? So sometimes they look at it as a sex educator, but the switch is I'd rather look at porn and masturbate than be intimate with my husband because it takes less energy in their minds or they can choose their own timing of it or they feel more powerful or in control or whatever the reason may be. 
but that's not always a good thing because obviously in marriage, we're supposed to be meeting each other's needs. And then the last bait is maybe pornography can help me get turned on for my husband. But the switch is, but now I don't seem to be able to get turned on at all without pornography. So that's how the addiction, it starts as a curiosity, um, wanting to learn things, wanting to understand things, but it graduates into a full-blown addiction very quickly. And, and again, many women feel as if it drains so much of their time and their energy and especially their sexual energies away from their husband. And that's never a good thing. And so let's talk for just a few minutes about how the human sexual brain is wired uh, there's been a lot of focus on how men and women are so, so different. But in my opinion, men and women are not that different when it comes to how the sexual brain is wired. So I want you to envision what is required for a male to have a successful sexual experience. So basically, if I just do this imagery, that would probably help spur the answer in your mind. In order for a man to be successful having intercourse with his wife, he has to get an erection. And where does that erection come from? Blood flow. Where does the blood flow come from? His extremities, his arms and legs. How does the vascular system know to send the blood flow from arms and legs to the groin? Because the pituitary gland has sent a message to the vascular system to do just that. Well, what triggers the pituitary gland to do this? For men, it's he has a sexy thought, which is usually spurred on by a visual image because men are very visually stimulated. God created the male eyeballs to really drink in and long to, to look at and just bask in the image of his wife's body or just the female body in general. And so that's what it takes to trigger his body to be ready for a successful sexual experience. Well, the female body is not all that different, but so oftentimes women don't even know what their bodies are capable of. She just assumes that all she needs is a little bit of lubrication and let her husband inside of her and that that's all that needs to be going on. But that is so minimal. That's just a fraction of what she could be experiencing sexually. So how the female body works is not that different in that her clitoris needs to be engorged. Her clitoris is basically like, imagine when a baby boy and a baby girl are conceived in their mother's wombs, they are identical until a certain week of gestation. And if there's a Y chromosome, the clitoris sprouts and becomes a penis. But if it doesn't have a Y chromosome, it remains a clitoris. So the penis and the clitoris are similar in the fact that that's where the majority of the nerve endings are. But interestingly enough, because the penis had to sprout, it only has 4,000 nerve endings, but the female clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings. So women should be deriving twice as much pleasure from sex than men, especially given the fact that she also has three ways to orgasm, whereas a man only has one, and a man has a refractory period and has to wait in between orgasms, but women can have one orgasm after another after another. So this whole thing that Sigmund Freud said that women just have penis envy, they just wish they had one of these. I'm sorry, why would she want a shotgun when she already owns a semi-automatic? Like the female body is the pinnacle of God's creation. What did God create after he made woman? Nothing. She was the cherry on top. And so what does it take for her to have as successful of an experience as the male? What does it take for her to get erect, for lack of a better expression? It's called engorgement. It's that 
this, it's very similar. The blood from her extremities gets collected and pooled in her genital region and causes the clitoris to become engorged. And basically it just feels a little bit fluffier and it feels uh, more sensitive to the touch and it feels good. Whereas if she is having her husband touch her without engorgement, it can be annoying and even painful. So what happens for her blood flow to send that extra uh, blood there to her clitoris? Same thing, her pituitary gland has to get triggered to send that message. Well, what triggers a woman's pituitary gland? She's not nearly as visually stimulated as he is. So for a woman, she is auditorily stimulated. It's what she hears. It's the stories that she imagines. Women are story-driven creatures. And so again, that's how the pornography industry has evolved to really hook women is because they're creating so much more porn that is storyline driven. So we don't want to take storylines I, like we don't want to say, ladies, if you would just stop thinking about sex, then you wouldn't be addicted to pornography. Because if we went to that extreme, what we've also done is shut her down sexually in her marriage. And that is the last thing we want to do. We, well, yeah, that is definitely the last thing that we would want her to do is to turn the volume knob in her head so far down low that now she has little to no interest. Uh, sexually. And so we have to understand that there is this one difference in how the male brain and female brain is wired sexually. And that is that men pretty much report that they are thinking about sex multiple times a day throughout the day, every day. They have a really hard time not letting their brain go there over and over and over again. Women are not wired that way. Women are thinking about the kids, the house, uh, the shopping, the checkbook. You know, they're thinking about the logistics of her tribe as Mama Bear, but she has to be intentional about telling herself stories to get herself aroused and interested in a sexual experience with her husband. So again, telling men of just try really hard not to think about sex and, and that way you won't be as tempted to look at porn, that may be an okay strategy for men, but it's not necessarily effective or wise for women because women, their sexual energies are like a pilot light. They need to keep it burning at a low level so that when it's ready to strike up the romance and the passion, then that, that fire can be there. But if she just totally dampens it and tells herself, don't ever think about sex, then it's really hard to get her juices flowing at that time when it, when it is appropriate. So men are thinking about sex 24 seven and really don't need to fantasize while he's making love with his wife. For the woman, it's often the exact opposite. She's never thinking about sex or fantasies, but in the act of intimacy with her husband, that is her tool to get her brain engaged and get that pituitary gland triggered and, and get her, like, literally get her head in the game. Uh, for a woman, orgasm is 95% mental. So she has to get her head in the game. So let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And what I mean by that is we don't want to teach women just not to have sexual thoughts. We want to teach women to to harness those sexual thoughts and unleash them exclusively in her husband's direction. We want to teach her that pornography is not a good sex educator. We want to teach her how not to poke holes in her bucket of sexual energy where it's just draining out at times by herself while she's looking at porn, but we don't want to squelch her sexual energies altogether 
because now we have a very sexually frustrated couple, especially a sexually frustrated husband, who again is probably turning to porn for lack of other options. So we don't wanna solve one problem at the expense of another and create a whole different problem. So how can we help women get more comfortable with their sexual energies, with their sexual thoughts, with their organic sexual fantasies, and not feel the need to fuel that through artificial means like pornography. Well, I wanna go through a list of questions that my human sexuality professor at Liberty University exposed us to in a classroom setting. And I was blown away by this. So the first question he tossed out was, was Jesus tempted sexually? Did he ever have sexual thoughts and feelings? Well, the Bible tells us, I believe it's Hebrews 4.15, uh, that Jesus himself was tempted in every way, but was without sin. There's no asterisk that says every way except sexually, because he wasn't one of those kind of guys. No, he came to earth as fully human as well as fully God. And so we know that he was tempted sexually because there's no way that that would have been excluded from his humanity. Sexuality is part and parcel with humanity. And so did he ever have sexual thoughts and feelings? Well, how do you experience a temptation if you never had a single thought or feeling in that direction? Of course, that's what a temptation is. It's a thought that produces a feeling, but Jesus showed us that you can have thoughts that produce a feeling that create a temptation that you just never act out on. And that that's what living with sexual integrity looks like. That is what holiness looks like. And we'll come back around to how I think that uh, some of the messages in the church have really twisted and distorted this in women's minds. But for right now, I'm going to go to the next question that Dr. David Lawson posed. So are all sexual thoughts and feelings sinful? When I give audiences an opportunity to chew on this question, what they usually come back with is, well, sexual thoughts and feelings about your spouse are okay, but any sexual thought or feeling about anything else is totally a sin. And my response back to them is the same one that Dr. Lawson gave to us. He said, who was Jesus's spouse? Now, I'm not condoning thinking of fantasies and thoughts about other people that actually exist. I'm simply explaining that the human brain is wired to have thoughts and feelings that aren't necessarily channeled exclusively toward our mate, but we do have the opportunity and the responsibility to harness the energy that those thoughts create and channel it exclusively toward our mate. Just because we have a thought or a feeling or a temptation in one direction doesn't give us permission to go in that direction. We have to capture that energy or as the Bible says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. But if we tell women that if you ever have a single sexual thought about anything or anyone other than your husband, then that's a sin. Again, they're going to turn that volume knob so low that she's not going to be able to hear or feel anything. So then the question is, what came first, the fall of man or sexual intimacy? So many people assume that if you have sexual energies in your body, if you have a sexual thought that produces a feeling and creates a temptation, that's already sin. No, it's not. Sexual intimacy was created before the fall of man. If you look at Genesis 2, sin did not enter the picture until after God had declared that it is very good and that the husband and the wife would leave their parents and cleave together and uh, multiply and, and fill the earth. And so we have to get over this mindset that sexual thoughts 
or feelings or even the temptation itself is a sin because it's absolutely not a sin. That is part and parcel with our humanity. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so the next question is, is it possible for a married couple to enjoy a healthy sex life with absolutely no guilt, shame, or inhibition? Well, gosh, I hope so. And then the final question is, is it possible for Christians to talk openly about sexuality with absolutely no guilt, no shame, no inhibition? Well, again, I hope so, because that's exactly what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to be talking about some fantasies and where they come from and how women struggle with these thoughts in their head. And I just want to have a no holds barred conversation. I don't want to have to candy coat it and do a, a tap dance here because we're all mature adults here and there is nothing unholy or impure about human sexuality and how the male brain and the female brain are wired by God to work. So let's unpack the scripture that usually causes people to hit a wall and feel as if every sexual thought is sin, every sexual feeling, unless it's specifically about your spouse in the missionary position once a week with the lights off. You know, like we have put so many external parameters around it that it almost appears unfun and people just want to break out of that mold. But let's look at the passage of scripture that people are using to support these theories that we need to, as a couple, dial our sexual energy so far down to almost zero. So I've asked Rob if he would read this particular passage of scripture for us. This is out of the New International Version. So Rob, would you go ahead? Yes, Matthew 5, 27 through 29. Have you heard that it was said, do not commit adultery? But I will tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So the question is, was this a sexual doctrine? And my belief, according to my hermeneutical study, is no, it is not intended to be a sexual doctrine. So let's take a step back and, and take a hermeneutical look at it. Who was speaking? Who is he speaking to? What were the words he used? What was happening in the culture at the time that necessitated such a conversation? And how do we apply that to our culture today? So what Jesus was responding to, I mean, this was the Sermon on the Mount, sorry, Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to his disciples and the other people who had gathered, and he was responding to the notion that the Pharisees had the impression that they were good enough and holy enough and pure enough and righteous enough to get themselves into heaven. The Pharisees didn't believe that they needed the coming Messiah. So Jesus masterfully reached into their life and pulled out the one thing that they did so often every day, multiple times a day, that if you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. But again, was this a sexual doctrine? The God that I know and love and serve would never say if, well, I'm going to create you as a sexual being from cradle to grave. But if you even have a sexual thought, you're going to go to hell. You may as well gouge your eye out and chop off your hand. Like the entire church would be walking around blind and with nubs on the end of their arms. If, if we interpreted it as, 
if we interpreted this literally. So we have to understand that, first of all, Jesus was speaking figuratively. He was saying, take sin seriously. But this was a salvation doctrine. He was saying, you're going to need the blood that I shed for you to get into heaven, because in your humanity, any little thing is enough to exclude you from heaven. The blood that I shed is the only perfect ticket into heaven. So why do I think that this is such an important passage to understand? Well, when I was a teenager, I was sitting around the table at my, my aunt's house, and she was telling us the story about how a few years earlier, she invited an unchurched friend to Sunday services, and that particular Sunday, the pastor was preaching on this passage, but instead of exegeting it, he eisegeted it and basically said, this is what this passage means to me. And he preached it as if it were a sexual doctrine. On Thursday of that week, my, my aunt got a call from her husband saying, I think you need to get down here right now. She arrived just before the ambulance to find her friend curled up in the fetal position in her bedroom, holding a spoon in her hand. And she had literally gouged out her eyeball because she had been having sexual thoughts about her boss, which she had not acted out on, but she just felt as if the only way that she was ever going to get right with God and be acceptable to him and get into heaven was if she did what the Bible told her to do. I know that that's a really extreme case of someone misinterpreting this passage so literally that they took such drastic measures, but it really does illustrate how when taken to the extreme, if misinterpreted, can really do a lot of damage. But let's talk about the word lust for a minute. If you even look upon a woman lustfully, I was doing a live television interview with James Robison on his show, Life Today, and he came up with the best definition of lust I had ever heard. He said, Shannon, a lot of people think that that a lustful thought is just recognizing that someone is beautiful or that they're sexually attractive. And he said, no, you'd have to be blind not to notice how beautiful and sexually attractive some people are. But he said, the definition of lust is going out of your way to make something yours that does not belong to you. And so with that in mind, hopefully we can present a more balanced scriptural view of sexual thoughts, because I do not think that God created us from cradle to grave as sexual beings and then threatens to send us to hell if we even have a single sexual thought. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus himself had sexual thoughts that produce sexual feelings. I often tell the story of when I lived in a condo across the street from a bank. Every day, the armored car would come and load up all the cash, and I would look out my window. Did I ever have thoughts of just taking one stack of that cash? Absolutely, I did. But did I ever like structure a plan? Heavens no. But what if I had gone down to the police station and said, put me in handcuffs and put me in a cell because I've been thinking about taking some of that cash. They would look at me like you belong in a cell, but not a prison cell, more like a mental health cell because you're not guilty until you've attempted it. And that's what we need to be preaching about our sexuality and our sexual thoughts and, and feelings. We're going to have them. We just have to harness them in. I, I like the analogy of a riverbed. A river will feed a community and, and feed their livelihood. But if it overflows its banks, it's going to destroy the community. So we have to give people the permission to, to feel their feelings and to have their thoughts and to feel the sexual energy that they need in order to create their marriage bed uh, or to, to keep it vibrant rather than just to shut themselves down so tightly because they don't want to give in to the temptation of looking at porn. There has to be a balance between these two opposite extremes. So a woman needs sexual thoughts. She needs to create that energy in her mind. This is how she is wired by God. 
But if she uses pornography and external images that are not organic, these were man-made. This is not just the story that sends her to a deserted island where she's all relaxed and can become sexually aroused with her husband. This is putting images of people who've been used and abused and creating scenarios that are so far-fetched that are, are just, y'all know what I'm talking about when it's, these are, these are not organic images. These are man-made images. When she puts those in front of her eyes and tries to use that as a storyline to create sexual energy in her body, what winds up happening is she strips her gears. What was intended to create this blood flow down to her clitoris and the, the sexual energy that she wants to harness toward her husband now she needs more and more. It's no different than the male brain. Now they need more and more intensity and more and more graphicness. And then she finds that she can't get aroused at all without these types of images. And I don't think that any woman wants to give up her brain that way and feel as if her sexual gears have been stripped altogether. And now her sexual mind is warped. So I want to just uh, mention very briefly, this, this information comes from my book, The Fantasy Fallacy. We assume that fantasies are just so bad and so wrong. And I beg to differ. God wired us to have fantasies as early as, I mean, like when we were little kids, that was what we were doing. Oh, well, what do you want to play? Let's play doctor. You be the patient. I'll be the doctor. Let's play mom and dad. Or, you know, like our brains are wired to create storylines, to create energy for the moment. And sex is no different. And so how is fantasy a, a friend? Well, women will ask me, is it wrong for me to fantasize about what sex is going to be like when my husband gets back from his deployment? I'm like, girlfriend, you better be keeping the home fires burning. You better keep that pilot light lit. You better be having these thoughts about what it's going to be when he comes home. Or one man asked me, is it a sin that I think about what sex was like in the good old days when we weren't struggling with cellulite ripples and wrinkles and gray hair and erectile dysfunction? I told him there was absolutely no sin in reminiscing about what sex was like with your mate years before. Those are sexy thoughts. And also these sexual thoughts and fantasies produce excitement. That is the, the purpose of the sexual brain and, and God made it so. And I'm so grateful that God did it that way. And I don't think that we as Christians should take that away from our congregants or from the people who trust our opinions, but fantasy can also become a foe. So, and then porn can also exacerbate the problem. So what I wanna do is to share with you a, a few concepts of how fantasy can become a foe so that people can kind of know when are they crossing the line. So understand that our fantasies are the brain's way of compartmentalizing pain long enough to make room for pleasure. Just like you couldn't have an orgasm and hit your thumb with a hammer at the exact same time, our brains have to compartmentalize emotional pain in order to create those avenues for pleasure in our brain that lead to orgasm. And so that's our brain's job to compartmentalize pain long enough to make room for pleasure. So if you have people make a list of their greatest traumas, trials, and tragedies, and then you also had them make a list of their most unconventional fantasies, the ones they wouldn't want to admit to their parents or their pastor, or maybe even their partner, those two lists would be mirror images of one another. And there's a psychological reason for that. And I unpack that more in the fantasy fallacy. I wish I had time to unpack that more with you today, but I assure you, if you'll read the fantasy fallacy, it will become crystal clear. American Association of Christian Counselors said that every pastor and counselor needs this tool in their tool belt to really be doing effective marriage and sex therapy with individuals and couples. So understanding that sometimes fantasy can be a foe, I want to talk about 
four quick ways and give you case studies of people who were using fantasy in this very way where it was destructive. So it can medicate our pain. There's a difference between healing our pain and medicating our pain. And basically medicating is repressing it, keeping it tamped down where it's still a problem, but we just try not to feel it. So there was a young lady who came to me many years ago. Her name was Cindy. She was 31 years old. She was addicted to lesbian porn. She had no idea why. She was absolutely humiliated. She was actually considering leaving her husband to experiment to see if she might indeed be a lesbian because these fantasies were so strong, especially right before orgasm. She didn't feel as if she could experience orgasm without a lesbian fantasy. And so I challenged her. I said, now, have you ever had a, a girlfriend before? No. Is there somebody in particular that you have a girl crush on right now? No. I did a sexual history with her. There was no indication of where that fantasy may have started, but God opened up my brain way back then and said, don't just ask her about her sexual history, ask her about her general history. And that is when I learned that when Cindy was 14, she had an 11 year old sister that went to spend the night with friends. And that night lightning struck the roof of that house and it burned to the ground and everyone inside was killed, including her sister. And I asked her, what kind of counseling did your parents get for you in the loss of your only sibling? What do you think she said? Nothing. I said, what kind of counseling did your parents get for the loss of their youngest child? Nothing. And then she went on to say, the only thing that I remember about my mom from that point on, she said before my mom would do our hair, uh, show us how to put on makeup, take us shopping, do our nails. But she said, after my sister's death, my mother just shut down, became a walking zombie. All she ever did was cry into the dishwater and complain that nobody ever helped her clean house. And when she left for college at 18, she said, I don't think I had seen the whites of my mother's eyes in, in those four years. So think about this, at a very pivotal age in her sexual development, she lost not just one, but two. The two people closest to her, both being female, she lost her sister physically and her mother emotionally. So what do you think her lesbian fantasies were all about? It was about recreating a resemblance of intimacy that, that recreated those past feelings of security. That's all that it was. But for her to use pornography to reinforce that imagery in her head was only making her feel worse about herself. So first she starved the pornography images and then she admitted to her husband what she struggled with because she said, I'm just afraid that he would feel as if I'm cheating on him if he knew what was going on in my brain when we're having sex. So when we explained where fantasies come from and, and how they're really just a mirror image of her greatest trauma, he said, that makes perfect sense that your brain would go there. And he said, not only does that not offend me and I'm not gonna judge you for that. He said, I promise to protect you from that because he said, do you know how many men would be like, what you fantasize about women? Well, let's go find one and have a threesome. But he said, I promise I will never put you in a compromising position knowing this about you. And so that story had a happily ever after ending. And I was very grateful for the work that I was able to do with her to help her understand the root cause of what she was really looking for when she was binging on these images and considering leaving her husband. And then let's talk about projection for a moment. A gal came to my workshop so concerned that she was going to lose her job because she was uh, feeling an overwhelming attraction to a young man that she had been assigned to. She was a juvenile delinquency officer and he was in prison at 19 years old. She had been his officer for over three years and he was about to be released 
And they had had conversations that since he didn't have anywhere to go, he could come and stay with her. But she knew that if she did this, A, she would be a sitting duck sexually because she was very attracted to him. And she sensed that he was attracted to her. And she would be uh, sub submitting her five-year-old son to who knows what. And so she came to the workshop to try to figure out what is this projection really all about? And someone asked in the group, uh, what her, well, I had asked, what is your earliest childhood memory? And she said her earliest memory was sitting in a hot car while her mother visited her father in prison. She wasn't allowed to go in. She was only three. And then someone in the group asked her, how old was your was your dad and your parents when you remember this happening? And she said, well, I know my parents were 16 when they got pregnant with me. So if she was three years old, do the math. Her dad was 19. So she was projecting this image of finally having access and getting close to her dad with this young man who was about to get out of prison because he was the exact same age as her dad was when she didn't have access to him. So for her to realize that was a huge awakening, but she admitted that for months she had been surfing for images, pornography that was all around prison type of scenarios where a guard has access to a prisoner or prisoners have access to one another or whatever. So she realized that this was fueling her fantasies and she had to stop before she crossed lines that would cost her her job and, and even more of her integrity. And then familiarity. Sometimes the fantasy is an attempt to recreate a scenario, but when this time? For example, a lady at my workshop had admitted that the reason she was there is because she herself was addicted to pornography. Her husband had conquered his addiction and he was very distraught about the fact that she was spending hours and hours wasting time looking at porn. And I asked her, what are the words that you put in your search engine to find the type of porn that you're looking for? Because there's millions of types out there. And at first she was mortified, but then she admitted, she said, well, it's threesomes. And I said, well, that's a pretty common search. And she said, it's not the kind of threesomes you think. I'm not looking for two women and a man. She said, I'm looking for two men and a woman. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about what your family of origin was like. And she explained that her parents were stoners. They would close themselves up in the bedroom and get high as a kite. And that's when her older brother would drag her into the bedroom he shared with their younger brother and molest her. And her only hope of survival was if the younger brother remembered that there was a key under the baseboard and maybe wanted to come into his room and get a toy or whatever. So from eight years old to 11 years old, she was molested by this older brother and she never told a soul until that day in my workshop. And so the idea, her fantasy of it being two men and a woman, but this time the woman was in charge. The woman was the dominatrix and the two men were the sex slaves. So it basically was the scenario she lived through turned on its head. This time she had power. This time she had control. Whereas before she felt out of control and powerless. So again, sometimes it's an attempt to just create a sense of familiarity, but you get the power that you didn't have at the time. And then also victory is another reason that some people create the fantasy in their head. For example, Tracy felt like the invisible child. She was a middle child. Her oldest sibling was overachiever. Her youngest sibling was a drama queen and she just got lost in the shuffle. She was a wallflower in high school, uh, college. She never had dates in college either. And so here she was in her thirties and she is binging on porn that involves strippers, exhibitionists, 
um, voyeurs, the whole idea of being seen, of performing, of doing the, the types of things that would allow a person to get the attention that she craved, that was what she had become addicted to. So to realize that she just needed to heal the wounds of not being seen and do something in society that would make you so valuable that you would draw attention to yourself, but in a healthy way and in a way that would serve society, not pull away from it. So as you can see, there are all kinds of reasons why people find themselves looking at porn and getting addicted. And it's often because it's meeting some sort of deep psychological need in them to heal something that they've never addressed before. And so here's the, the plan to help them escape this slavery. Number one, we need to affirm her sexual thoughts and feelings, not shut them down entirely. Uh, we need to affirm her need for organic healthy fantasies because that's what creates the sexual energy for her marriage so that her pilot light doesn't go out altogether. We don't want to create someone who's totally shut down that she's an ice queen and her husband is just like totally clueless as to how they can ever light that fire again. Uh, she also needs to just cut off the pornography supply altogether so she can starve the addiction that's taken control of her life. She needs to seek a female prayer partner and uh, find an encouraging support group. And of course, the Covenant Eyes software for ongoing accountability is really vital in her journey, just knowing that that safeguard is always going to be there on her laptop or phone. And then the payoff of this plan is that First of all, she no longer feels enslaved to a time and energy sucking addiction. Uh, number two, her sexual gears are no longer stripped or warped by outside imagery. The God wired our brains to be able to conjure up any imagery that we need to light our fire. And she needs to depend on how God wired us, not the external stuff that infects us. And then her self-esteem soars as she feels more in control. She feels more powerful than she ever has before. And her sexual energies are harnessed and channeled exclusively toward her husband. That is the best that we can hope for is that she would take those thoughts captive and make it obedient to Christ so that she can keep her marriage bed vibrant. So again, this back and forth pendulum swing, either extreme is unhealthy and we don't want to push them to one extreme just to get them out of the other extreme. Our goal needs to be to nudge them toward a healthy middle ground where they're still interested in motivated sex partners, but only with their husbands, not someone else. One of my favorite sayings is that everyone comes with baggage. Find someone who loves you enough to help you unpack. And if you as a pastor or women's ministry leader or counselor, if you don't feel as if you know how to guide someone to get to some of these root causes, find someone who specializes in sexuality that can just come alongside of you and this person to help them discover those roots because people can waste years in counseling and not get the traction. So oftentimes what I hear is clients will say, how is it that I have made more progress with you after three coaching sessions than I have with my counselor or pastor in three years? And the reason is because we can become, as counselors, we can become licensed. And as pastors, we can become ordained without ever having taken a single human sexuality class. We really need to seek the help of someone who has a very deep and rich and broad understanding of human sexuality to help someone cut straight to the core, straight to the roots of what's driving their unwanted sexual behaviors. And so if you would like a, a book to put into this person's hands and maybe offer to read along with them, The Fantasy Fallacy is my absolute best recommendation. It covers all different kinds of fantasies and what the root of those may be to really help them connect the dots. 
And then also I've mentioned the workshop several times. These are our Women at the Well four-day intensive workshops where eight to 10 women gather together in my living room to sift, sort, and separate the emotional baggage of their childhood and of their recent past to connect the dots on what it is that's driving them toward the unwanted behaviors. In addition to couples, or I'm sorry, at the addition, ugh, in addition to women at the well, we also have couples at the well workshops where husbands and wives come together. We usually limit that to three or four couples at a time where together they can unpack their own sexual history and sexual baggage and grow closer together as a couple. And then also we're going to be hosting a sexually confident couple workshop in Placencia, Belize at the sexiest resort I have ever seen in my entire life. And so that's coming up in 2022 because of COVID, we had to, to postpone it from this year and we're aiming for about a year and a half from now. So you can find out more about that at shannonethridge.com. And then finally, I just want to mention that there's all kinds of free information at my podcast on the archives uh, with Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and Friends. And if you yourself is someone who specializes in one of these types of uh, fields where a conversation with you would be really helpful to my audience, I would love to hear from you. I would love to have you as one of my, one of my friends, one of my guests on the podcast so that we can really open up lines of communication within the church and among Christians because there just hasn't been enough communication and conversation around what healthy sexuality looks like. We've had a lot of shutting people down and just say no and and a lot of not intentional shaming, but I think that that's kind of been the result of a lot of the conversations. I want to have conversations that open people up to the reality of what God intended when he created us when he created us as sexual beings where we can blossom sexually within the marriage. And so I want to just pause there and give people an opportunity that if you have a question or a comment that everyone would benefit from hearing us chew on together, I would love to dialogue with you here in these last 12 minutes that we have. So thanks for the opportunity to unpack all of that. I know that it probably feels like you were taking a drink from a fire hydrant, but hopefully you got a few nourishing swallows out of all of that. And I know that this is being recorded, so you can always go back and listen to it later or share it with someone that you think would benefit. So does anybody have any questions that you'd like to pose? Wow, Shannon, that was so amazing. And we do have a few questions coming in, if it's okay. Um, let's take a look here. Uh, this one's easy. Will this be available somewhere after this meeting? Absolutely. We will send out the recording to everyone that's present today. So that's an easy one. Um, we do have a question from someone that's a guest that said, uh, they're a single woman who is struggling with pornography. They're tempted to engage with pornography and they when they feel lonely or sexually aroused, what can they do to break those chains of the addiction when the mental and physical urges are so strong? And how do they fight them practically? Do you have any recommendations for this person? Yes, great question. This is all about associations. I want you to think about the fact that we associate things together. When I say salt, you think of pepper. When I say peanut butter, you think of jelly. And so oftentimes people associate uh, sexual energies or masturbation with porn. But let's remember that pornography wasn't even created until 1952 when Playboy magazine came out with, you know, print porn. Uh, so there, it doesn't have to go hand in hand. We were, as human beings, we were feeling sexual energies long before pornography was invented. So stop fueling the association. For example, 
uh, I grew up eating peanut butter and jelly, but when I got married, my husband was raised on peanut butter and honey. And once I tried that, it was like, I may never go back to peanut butter and jelly again. You can make a new association. So that new association is, yes, I have sexual energies in my body because I'm alive. Just like I need to breathe, just like I need to eat, just like I need to sleep, uh, just like I get thirsty, I'm going to get horny. But you can be horny and holy at the same time. This is not an indication of your sinfulness. Again, sexual intimacy and sexuality was created before the fall of man. So not letting yourself go down a big shame spiral that leads you to want to medicate with pornography is absolutely vital. Another question coming in from a pastor who is working with a lady in the church who is physically attracted to another married man in the church. Uh, she herself is married with two children. She knows what she is doing is wrong and she loathes uh, her husband for not being attractive as the other man. So a lot of common themes here. The other, uh, there's two, two relationships in, in jeopardy here and this pastor really wants to know you know, can he advise reconciliation, separation? Do you have any recommendations on what he might be able to do for these folks? Absolutely. I would say that what this woman is doing is what I mentioned earlier, projecting. There is something about this other man that she perceives is going to fix all the things that are broken about her. That's going to remedy all the things about her life that she doesn't like, but nothing could be further from the truth. She's only going to make a much bigger mess. And you know what? Three years down the road, if that were to create a marriage, three years down the road, she would have the exact same issues. She, she would be thinking about all the ways that he doesn't measure up. And so helping her understand that this is not about him. He's just the projection screen. The story that I tell is that if you walked into a living room and your teenage son is projecting a pornographic movie on a screen, are you going to get mad at the screen? No, the screen is just reflecting back what the teenage boy is, is projecting onto it. So this woman is projecting a storyline onto this man that he is my fulfillment. He can complete me. He can medicate the pain from my past. She probably has some daddy issues is my guess. My guess is he's maybe a little bit older than her. Maybe she has some brother issues and, and he's like a similar age as her brother would have been. Helping her rewind the tape of her life and look at what pain she's never addressed could be absolutely vital in helping her break free from this temptation to project it onto another human being. Great. And, Thank you. and also, Karen, I want to add that if she would like a free 15-minute consultation with me, or if this pastor would like a free 15-minute consultation with me, I frequently consult with people on these matters because it is absolutely vital to keep these two families, and these two marriages intact and not let these fantasies get so out of control that now you've got two broken families and a big scandal in your church. Nobody wants to go through that. That's amazing. So all the pastors and leaders on this call, you just heard that offer that Shannon is accessible and able to support you. So there's no more excuses in the way here. We definitely want to tackle this topic. Yeah, um, absolutely. Shannon, also, also, Karen, if they would like for me to do a similar webinar at their church or for their church, we can do it via Zoom until COVID clears up. But you know, to share this kind of information can really be a huge game changer and go from a church that rarely talks about it or only talks about it from the just say no perspective. It really opens up those lines of communication where it can be a sex positive message, but an, a message of integrity, a message of character and doing the right thing with our sexual energies. Absolutely. 
We have another question coming in. Uh, it's related to speaking to mixed audiences about the dangers of pornography, uh, even when de-shaming the topic effectively and creating a, re a restorative culture. Is changing the story of speaking to men to speaking to men and women an effective way to reach women who are struggling with pornography in the church? I do. I completely, I, do you remember when we were in junior high and they would put the boys in one room and the girls in another room to have totally different sex talks? And that made no sense. That made no sense in my mind why we would want to so polarize it and scandalize it. There was a particular Sunday that I was sitting in church and uh, a, a guest pastor was talking about pornography and he mentioned, ladies, you have no idea how lucky you are that this is not a battle that you fight. And I contacted him later that same day and I said, do you realize, and I did it in love, of course, but I said, do you realize how much shame you just infused into every single woman who does struggle with it. Maybe there's not as many as there are men, but stop assuming that this is exclusively a man's battle because it's not. Actually, I believe the statistic is like 37% of women admit that they are addicted to pornography. It is not just a man's battle. So true, yeah, the latest statistics are about a third of women. You know, and the interesting thing too is our, our culture's changed a lot. Cohabitation is up, you know, uh, sex before marriage, you know, young people are doing that and we, we don't talk about sex in the church. So uh, to me, this is a great topic. I, I think there's probably people that were on this webinar today that probably fell out of their chair a couple of times because this type of conversation is not happening on a regular basis. And I would encourage everyone that's on this call today to definitely reach out to Shannon, check out her website, um, we need to start talking about this ongoing and regularly because the more we talk about it, the more comfortable people will be with addressing pornography and other related sexual issues. Um, we do have a couple more that are coming in. Uh, a question that uh, came in here is what if using pornography has kind of, um, let's see, how do they phrase this? What if you have used pornography for so long that your gears are stripped? So what, what does that person do? following those exact steps of you have to cut it out of your life, but continue to affirm your sexual energies, your sexual thoughts. That's organic. That is from God. Um, and having that accountability, I can't recommend Covenant Eyes enough. It really is a, a safeguard for you to not keep gravitating back there time and time again. And also I want to mention that if you as a pastor or leader or counselor are struggling in, when, in with one of these issues yourself, nobody says that you're exempt from these kind of struggles. You're a human being too. And so I always offer a 25% discount to people in leadership, people in ministry to do either one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, either phone or Zoom or face-to-face -face if you prefer, and also to attend a workshop of your own. We only know each other's first names. No one knows your last name. No one knows that you're a pastor. No one knows that you're a leader. And so don't overlook your own need for, for personal healing and growth in this area because you can't help other people when you yourself have not figured out the solution to get to get free of these chains that binds the, it binds the best of us. It is so, e we are so easily entangled in this. So please don't think for a minute that I'm going to be shocked if you reach out to me and tell me that you are yourself are a pastor or a leader. I would venture to say that probably 20% of my clients are in some form of Christian leadership. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's session. I know that you all have probably more questions for Shannon. We are going to send you an email that will have links to Shannon's contact information as well as her website. Um, please reach out to her. We've got to start having this dialogue on a regular basis in the church. There are women who are, you know, like you talked about the pendulum, they're on one side or the other, and we need to bring people back into the middle. And we only do that by putting light on this issue. So we do want to thank everybody for taking time out of their busy schedule today and joining us uh, for this pastor's roundtable. We will send out the recording after the event. And again, thank you and God bless everyone. Stay safe, stay well, and thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Shannon. We appreciate it. Bet. Thank you, Karen and Rob. Yeah, God bless. Thanks. Bye-bye. Betcha.